I don't like the Catholic Church because of what I think it is, right? And actually, the reality is that you don't even know what it is. And it is this great redeeming body. It is this great body of faith and redemption and salvation in which we find God's love. And it's not this great condemning vehicle, this monolithic sledgehammer that cracks down on people's morality. Hello, friends. I had a really neat discussion with someone last week, someone who you'll probably know. He's quite famous because he's the CEO of Parler, the social media app, but you might not know him for that reason. He's also famous because he's the husband of Candace Owens. He's also a very strong Catholic. He's a convert. I got to speak with him about his faith, about his wife, and really strangely, he married his wife after only eight months of knowing each other. In fact, he proposed 17 days after meeting her. Well, a lot of his friends might have thought he was crazy, but after two kids and being happy, ma happily married now for three years, he's doing quite well. Stay tuned. Hello, LifeSafe friends. Aren't you sick of the cancel culture? Aren't you sick of the overlords at YouTube deciding what you'll be able to see and what you won't? Are you sick of them dictating morality and your use of pronouns? Well, we have had enough. With rampant attacks and continuous censorship we face here at LifeSite News, we've decided to bite the bullet. We are taking video into our own hands and we're playing on our own terms rather than the whims of big tech. We have launched our own video platform. Now we have the ability to showcase our important news and views without the risk of being banned and silenced. Defenders of faith, life, family, and freedom can now speak freely at LifeSite News without censorship from anti-life, anti-family, anti-faith, anti-freedom folks who seem to run all the big tech companies. This, of course, takes tons of hard work and also your support. So we're in the midst of our quarterly spring fundraising campaign, and we are in need of your support, both prayerful and financial. These fundraising campaigns are vital to our survival and the ability to broadcast the truth for free all around the world. So with the launch of our new video platform, we will be incurring many new ongoing expenses due to the size and bandwidth of our servers, the personnel expenses to maintain such a large system, and for new and improved features that we hope to add in the coming months. We must raise our campaign goal of an absolute minimum of $500,000 to continue the fight to withdraw completely from big tech and strengthen our ability to survive in the giant online world. So please donate at the link in the description below. Thank you for your prayers, your support, and your dedication. We are honored to be in this fight with you. May God bless you. George Farmer, welcome to the program. Good to see you, John Henry. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. So let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, George, you're a fascinating guest for us, um, in, in a way, largely because your wife is so well-known. Candace Owens is a figure who, in our community of, of sort of, you know, pro-life, pro-family folks, Candace Owens is huge. Her <laughs> outspokenness on so many of the issues that are so large in our lives and finally a defender of, you know, the values that we have in our faith and, uh, you know, 
on this side of the spectrum, it's so rare to see someone with that kind of gumption and so well-spoken. So we're, please pass on to your wife um, a huge thank you for us. I'll pass it on. She's definitely not shy in coming forward, as we would say in the UK. And uh, she's she's great. I mean, I'm very biased. I'm married to her. So yeah, it's uh, it's fun to be around. You never quite know what you're going to get hit with this week or that week. It's always something different. But it's uh, she's a real fighter. She has courage. She she really does have tremendous courage. I would say about my wife. She is it's incredible. It's I, I think just incredible courage that I've I've very rarely seen in any human. Political courage obviously very different to battlefield courage, et cetera, but, but the ability to be unafraid in the face of overwhelming odds to speak the truth is something which I think we would all do well to learn from. So she definitely has a lot of it. It's very fascinating for us here at LifeSite because she is married to a Catholic. You're a convert to the Catholic faith, and we would very much love to hear about that. If you wouldn't mind sharing with us your conversion story. I'll give you the abbreviated version because I think the uh, the full version might might take quite some time. But I was brought up in an evangelical household, um, and my father was in the UK. That's quite unusual, which is obviously where I'm from. I'm from London originally, and um, my father was a convert to uh, the evangelical church through a religious experience, actually, which he's spoken about before in public. And and actually, I think it's you know, quite an incredible story. And to me, it still holds hugely powerful meaning to this day. You know, he heard a voice in the night calling him, uh, literally just his name. And he, you know, got out of bed and said, yes, Lord, what must I do kind of thing. And, you know, phenomenal story in many ways. And he became a Christian literally overnight. I mean, literally overnight, he became a Christian. And so that brought me up in a home. This was before I was born, but that brought me up in a home which was steeped in the biblical tradition of scripture, daily scripture, daily reading, daily prayer. Um, I always, I kind of, I could sense from quite a young age that this was unusual amongst my peer group. The UK is much more advanced in its secularism than the US. And as a result, you know, I could tell like, okay, this is unusual. I'm, I'm talking about going to church on Sunday. Nobody else talks about going to church on Sunday. Um, and by the time I was probably in my kind of early teenage years, I was very interested in theology as a concept the you know theology as a as a sort of psychology in some ways but as a means of living um and the fact that faith throughout history had had more power on people than i think any other force that we can that we can recognize as a race that's still true to this day in fact actually candace was in fact reading me a section from a book that she's reading or rereading should i say uh, on human nature by eo wilson where it talks about the phenomenon of, of faith and religion and it actually says that, you know he's he's coming at it from quite a secularist point of view and he basically says faith will never be understood by psychologists because it's it's exerts this huge power over people um and that was my experience it had a huge power in my Early years, it had a huge power of persuasion and, and rationality, which was forming itself in my mind in my early teenage years. And so I was very inquisitive in that area and in that in, in, in pursuing that kind of ground of, of truth seeking. I started taking religious studies. Uh, in the UK, the schooling system is different. You start to specialize from a very young age. So really by the age of like 14, you're starting to specialize in your, in your preferred topics. So when I was 14, I, I started dropping other subjects. One of the subjects that I didn't drop 
in fact you kind of have to opt in in many ways so i opted into religious education early theology and started studying theology in a more advanced uh function and i think that when you start to study theology and when you start to study the christian faith in more and more and more depth there's many other converts to the faith that found you start to get confronted with the reality that the catholic church holds the fullness of truth and many of the other you know, branches if you like to call it that of christianity don't don't haven't got that and uh for me that was particularly made prevalent really because i had this chaplain who was actually an anglican chaplain uh in the anglican communion because my school was an anglican school and he was an anglican priest and he himself after i had left school converted to catholicism as well uh which i found a great sense of irony but basically he was my priest for about four years and during this time he and i really had so many battles uh in the classroom and out of the classroom about catholicism and and i went in with all these predis you know these predispositions about what catholicism was really about and what i'd been brought up to believe and you know what it meant and all this kind of stuff and actually he was very good obviously what i didn't realize was that he was also on this path of discernment but he was actually very good at dismissing many of my preconceived notions about catholicism and by the time that i was uh 18 19 my intellectual conversion had been completed and and i went up to university in in england and i uh pretty much in my i think in my second week i emailed the catholic chaplaincy to say i wanted to become uh, a catholic and they took me under rcia and then i was confirmed having been baptized before by the bishop of oxford in in 20 2009 i think it was 2009 10 or something like that what was one of the biggest questions for you what was one of the biggest things answered that startled you it was i think it was fulton j sheen who said um there are very many people who hate the catholic church but i think he said something like 90 percent of them hate the church for what they think it is there's very very few who hate the church knowing what it really is but what was one of those things that for you was most startling or most moving and answering that question is, is it sort of leads me to my kind of, I want to say my second conversion. So I had this intellectual conversion when I was kind of my official reception into the church and my intellectual conversion when I was in my late teenage years, early twenties. And then I actually went through quite a period where I, I, you know, I sort of was dormant in my faith, really, to be honest. I, I was, I felt like I had achieved what I would set out to achieve, which was reception and acceptance into the Catholic church. And then I kind of, was like well okay i'm done now you know i'm finished uh so that's it you know i don't need to worry about anything else and then actually for many years i wasn't practicing and you know I, I i fell away and then i had kind of a reversion and in many ways there were two it was kind of a conversion of the the heart and a conversion of the head the conversion of the head came first and the conversion of the heart came second and uh i would say in the first conversion the conversion of the the head you know what what persuaded me uh was i was brought up sola scriptura obviously as many as many protestants are and 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 my church which probably was bordering on calvinism in many ways and um i actually think that if you simply hold the scriptures alone this was this was actually where i started off i i said that if you hold scripture to be true and that actually you just use scripture you will get to catholicism um and i think that there's a few things in there which like a absolute you know, atom bomb kind of landmark moments in my conversion. The the transubstantiation, the the issue of of Christ's body and, and blood being present, the real presence, 
is is clear. I mean, I just couldn't get around that. I, I kept on arguing with myself about this issue. I kept on saying, well, hang on, you know, maybe it's a symbol, it's a memorial, etc. But uh, it's so clear and black and white in scripture that I, I just couldn't keep arguing with this because at the end of the day, I said, well, he, he literally says it is my body. Unless you eat of my body in John, you know, you are you are not you are not saved. It is it is so clear. And then likewise, I would also say the baptism issue, unless you're baptized with water and spirit, you know, you cannot you cannot find entry into the kingdom of God. This is this is again, unless you are baptized with water and spirit, this is in scripture. And again, so I was presented with these scriptural arguments for Catholic positions. And I found it very difficult to uphold Protestant teaching in this area because it's so flagrantly in opposition to what scripture itself says. And then once I started investigating, you know, I'm a kind of numbers guy in many ways. And the numbers didn't add up to me. You know, this is like, well, what are we saying? We just we're saying we lost one and a half thousand years of Christianity before the Reformation. You know, again, this didn't make any sense to me. Um, and then you start reading the Church Fathers, and then you get into the. And I studied patristics when I was at university, and as I did theology as a as a degree as a bachelor's, and then uh, and then you know I studied patristics, studied Augustine. I, I was overwhelmed with the amount of Catholic doctrine and teaching which is found in the early church fathers and so for me that was kind of the intellectual conversion my conversion in my head that was really i don't know the lord called i guess the lord just thought it was the right time to to get back involved with my life <laughs> and uh, and so i i think i think the the longer term conversion of my heart was probably as a result of the fact that i can see more evil in the world now than ever before and this in and then this led me to question where my own faith was and how seriously i was taking it and what does it even mean to be involved in politics or you know culture or whatever it might mean if you don't have the lord and you don't have god and so for me that i think was then the the step where i just said actually i've got this all wrong and i've been ignoring him for a long time and this is really important to me what year are you living now where where that conversion of the heart really happened I would say that took place probably about three and a half years ago. And what was it that you saw that most struck you in terms of seeing the evil in the world? What was it that moved your heart and made you realize, whoa? It's not one factor. It's a multitude of factors. To some extent, it was, it's where culture is today is, is, is in a very dark place as a whole, right? And there are many examples of this. So you could say anything from, um, you know, the rise in divorce to, uh, transgenderism to you know gay marriage to all of these different areas which are you know against church doctrine against church teaching um all of these areas are clearly you know problematic and give a sense of the kind of rising tide of secular faith which is pushing um you know which is pushing the church out what i would say is that in terms of where I kind of got to, I think there was a sense of despondency on my own part, uh, a sense of despondency because I also feel that to some extent, the kind of traditional, what would be called in America, the religious right is moving away from that ground, right? And I think that there's also a sense where they're losing sight of true principles of what actually tethers us to reality. And what tethers us to reality is not an adherence to free market principles. It's not an adherence even to the constitution of America great as these things may be, wonderful things as these things may be, it's an adherence to God. It's an adherence to the true underlying knowledge of the creator. Without him, we are all lost. 
Um, and so I think as 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 in some ways, as both sides of the political aisle move down the path of secularism, and you can see that more and more and more, you start to be fearful of the fact that nobody is taking God seriously. Nobody is bringing God back into the to the political realm. It's interesting, too, that you decided to do that because the, the church herself, if you will, has been involved in a lot of the mess or the, the dark times that we're in. You have this situation right now in, in the church where you had a huge, even when you when you had your conversion of the heart, the church was steeped in a sexual abuse scandal. The church was steeped in kind of infidelity among prelates and, and priests and so on. And yet you still uh, came in. Yeah, I mean, the church, of course, is a human, it's, you know, I mean, the church is the bride of Christ, but its physical manifestation in this world is, is a human institution, which, of course, is, is deeply corrupted. Um, and you know, it's sad to see. And, and I mean, I think the Bible talks very clearly, those who are entrusted great power of great, of much, of much of them will be asked. Um, and likewise, those who abuse power, you know, in this case of sexual abuse will be, you know, cast into the fire pit. Uh, so, uh, and of course, I'm not sitting in that position. And I'm, each person's judgment, each person's own salvation is, is of course, their relationship with, 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 Holy Mother Church and God himself. But of course, it is very sad to see this from the outside. And we should, as a church, be quick to react and to remove those who have been abusing power for the many, for many, many years. I think the church itself is often misunderstood. And you, you quoted Newman earlier, and I think that that's a really relevant quote, because as as the rest of society sees it, it's always about like I don't like the Catholic Church because of what I think it is, right? And actually, the reality is, is that you don't even know what it is. And it is this great redeeming body. It is this great body of faith and redemption uh, and salvation in which we find God's love. And it's not this great, you know, condemning vehicle, this monolithic kind of sledgehammer that cracks down on people's morality. And I, I think it is of course, there's church teaching. Of course, there's church doctrine, which absolutely has to be upheld and preserved and, and is sacrosanct. Um, and that has stayed the same for thousands of years. And we must uphold those truths to be true. But it is a vehicle for salvation. It's you know, Christ came to save the tax collectors and the sinners. He didn't come for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, well, I mean, he did, but they turned his, turned their hearts against him. So, so you know, I think it's, it's really important that we as a church remember that and offer that chance for redemption to everybody. Um, you know, I mean, Candace has actually talked about the abortion topic quite frequently in 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 public, in the public sphere, and I think that that's her messages would be the same as mine. You're not going to win this argument by making people feel terrible about themselves. You may have done something terrible, but so have I. So have you. I mean, we've all done horrible things. We've all done terrible things. We are all sinners, um, and we are justified in the in the sight of the Lord through His his son, Jesus Christ. So we, we have to find the church as a vehicle for redemption. Here's a question for you. Feel free to not answer if, if you don't feel so called, but you've received a great grace because a lot of people don't get one chance. You've been given two very strong, first to move you, as you said, in your head and then in your heart, two very definite interventions of our Lord in your life. Do you, and maybe you don't even know, do you have a specific 
called, do you believe, uh, from our Lord to engage in something? Obviously, you're called. Everyone's called to a certain work for the Lord. Have you figured out what that is for you? Because you've been so powerfully um, moved, not once, but twice. Um, in your, your upbringing, you could see it. Our Lord uh, sort of talked to your dad um, and already put you on a path and then brought you to the fullness of faith and then called you back when you went away from it. So um, it's a fascinating development there. I just wanted to know if you, if you knew perhaps what you're called to, or at least, you know, a work that you're called to so far. Before I got married, which was kind of in the early days, I guess, of when my faith started, to, you know, to call me back, that second calling, as you mentioned, um, you know, that was kind of, when I look back on it now, I can see the workings of, of God's hand at that time. Um, I would pray, the, the prayer that I was praying at the time was, you know, Lord, show me the path before my feet, um, which is uh, quoting from 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 the, the psalmist and i still feel that way a little bit to this day you know lord show me the path before my feet so that you know i may have a heart of wisdom to understand your words and to see where you would like to take me and let me un let me interpret the truth i don't have a specific sense right now of where he's taking me um or what he would like from me um i i'm just going with the fact that he has placed me in nashville um and that we have a very very fast growing church here which is you know, doing great work and incredible traction and growing out of control, which is fantastic. Um, and I think that there are, you know, other things more, you know, having a family, providing support in many ways to a woman whose fame and notoriety goes, you know, is far, far larger than mine will ever be or should be. Um, so I'm happy to play that support role in many ways. Just a quick note before we return, if you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. One of the interesting things is you mentioned now that the call you felt the that second conversion started prior to your marriage how do you feel god worked obviously he worked in your marriage but can you see the hand of our lord working um in your marriage to candace and how all that played out and if you're able to share some of how that played out you know when i look back on it now i view it in many ways as a miracle i mean uh she and i met and we were engaged after 17 days um you know it was a very very quick turnaround. <laughs> Um, you know, we were, we were married within eight months, um, of, of the first time we met, you know, we were married within eight months and it was definitely something where I think the Lord, the Lord called me to it. You know, I, I felt very powerfully that there was this voice saying, follow this path, you know, come down here. I, I have things to show you down here. Um, that being said, Candace herself is obviously not a Catholic, um, and I think that's that's well known in the public in the public sphere. But she and I talk about it the whole time. Uh, we talk about faith, and I think that that's again that kind of comes back to you know the second conversion in many ways, the kind of cultural realization that I had, which is that the whole culture is moving in this weird and not necessarily a good path. You know that the rise of the the secular agenda on the right is is as much a concern as it is on the left. Um, and I think as a result, you know, she feels very interested suddenly in the in the faith conversation. 
you know, she and I talk about Catholicism the whole time. Her faith journey is her own. You know, I, I, I can't, I couldn't put a place right now where she is. I, I, I wouldn't know. Um, but she is very, very interested. And we talk a lot about Catholic ideas. You know, I play Catholic podcasts quite frequently. I play the sermons of Archbishop Sheen quite, quite frequently as well. She gets a fair dose of those in the car. I have books and everything, and she's read many of them. So, you know, she and I talk about it a lot. And I think in many ways, as it's, you know, it is, it is that kind of sense of, of irony that as the devil works harder to conquer, you know, to kind of reconquer territory that, that our Lord has won for himself, you know, the, the surge of light from him gets even stronger and, and starts to raise up people in this world who are speaking up for him and speak up for his truth. And I think that that is definitely the case in, in her is definitely the case and, and in myself as well. So I think that there's a kind of growing sense that actually without God, all of these political discussions are somewhat meaningless and we do need to come back to first principles. Let's talk about 17 days. A lot of parents would say, well, that's insane. What do you mean? Seven, you've just met this person. This is like a little over two weeks ago. What in the world are you doing? I'm sure you faced some of that. And I'm sure Candace faced some of that from her parents. So how did that go down? It went down much like as you just explained it, which was kind of <laughs> this is madness. Um, you know, what does one do about this? So my parents actually, you know, to give them real credit, I think my parents were just like, okay, you know, we don't really know how to deal with this one. So we're just going to let you one ride this out. Um, I mean, I think that there were certainly a lot of our friends who were very skeptical, uh, to say the least, but also a lot of them, I think, saw just the sense of it. I think that a lot of them thought that it just made sense. And uh, some of them didn't even ask questions. One of them was very, very skeptical. I remember to this day, he was incredibly skeptical, but now I think as a convert to to the fact that we're still married and obviously have two kids and 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 a growing family, et cetera. I think that we got over those initial hurdles after we cleared the first year of marriage, because I think a lot of people just expected it to kind of not work out and fail, et cetera. And I just said, that's never going to happen. You know, this is, this is not the way it was set up to be. Today, our, our concept is, you know, meet, date for five, 10 years, try it out, live together, whatever, whatever. Would you recommend having sort of been there, done that, a, a much more um, <laughs> succinct dating period, a courtship period or whatever. What's your thoughts on that? There's definitely something to be said for it. <laughs> you know, I've read some commentary about some posts on, on the web about what people think about our dating period and marriage, et cetera. And it's funny because you kind of get people divided into two camps. You get really some people who just think we're completely crazy. And, and those tend to be, I would, generally argue those tend to be people who don't agree with Candace's politics as a whole. Um, so, you know, there tend to be people who are like, oh, you you know, guys, you guys are ridiculous and you're just never going to work out. Although they don't quite say it in those words, it's normally a little bit more unfriendly than that. Um, but then you actually get the other stories. And somebody else once said to me in a funny way, which is that you should be able to tell, you know, you, after six months, you should really be able to tell whether or not you're going to, this is going to work or it's not. And if it, if it isn't going to work, you know it by that point. And actually, I can think back on every relationship that I've had in many ways, you know, it was the same, it was the same story after six months, I really knew and um, whether or not the relationship was longer or shorter, uh, you know, I, I could probably tell by that point. So I, I would definitely say there's a strong logic to not prolonging things, which 
you know, actually don't necessarily make sense, you know, just end it. One of the things you have to deal with, uh, because your wife is so in the limelight, is the condemnation, the pressure, the, the antagonism, the, you might say, hatred um, that she will get, and therefore you and your children will experience um, to some extent anyway. How do you help with that? And, um, you know, just share what you can about that, perhaps. It's definitely tricky with children, you know, and we haven't yet reached that uh, hurdle in terms of a public, you know, our kids are very young. They're both under three, um, you know, and so as a result, we will have to negotiate, I guess, that somewhat tricky barrier um, when we reach it. Dealing with the hate outside of kids, which, as I say, mercifully, we don't have to, we haven't yet had to cross that, that river yet but dealing with the hate outside of it i guess is i'm not going to be flippant by saying it's fine but you know there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of it which just does wash off after a while you know i think i think that the internet is a somewhat meaningless place sometimes you know i think the internet is a wonderful place and also a meaningless place it has and a dark place you know i mean there's pornography there's violence there's all kinds of stuff you could possibly see you know and there's and there's great stuff out there too. There's YouTube. There's great content on YouTube. There's great content on Rumble. There's great content all over the place. It's really up to the discerning kind of reader slash viewer uh, of what you want to look at. If you spent your life living in the comment sections of videos which were really hateful, I think you would get quite depressed about it. That being said, I have done that occasionally, and I actually do find it quite humorous sometimes because, you know, if people could apply the intensity of their hate to their work, I'm sure we would be a much more productive and industrious nation because there are people in the comments who it feels as if sometimes, uh, you know, I've I've wronged them personally in some way, shape or form. Uh, but actually, of course, it's never been the case. I don't even know these people, but somehow they just have this burning hatred for everything that I stand for or that I or that I believe in. And I and I, I kind of I, I wish them well. I pray for them. I think that I hope that they find. I think I hope that they find love in their life. Um, you know, I think a lot of it comes from a comes from a place where they themselves are either lonely or love or loveless. Um, you know, and I, and I, I hope that they find the, the light of the Lord in there as well. I, I think that that's actually what's really missing from a lot of the conversations in p- politics is that there, there's no sense of the love of God. There is only the sense of nowadays, there is only vin- vindictiveness and being right. And that is just not a healthy attitude to approach political dialogue from. You have to approach it from position, position of love, um, and position of wanting to mediate and seek the best solution um, and to help find healing in many ways. I think that that's probably the, the best attitude that I could put forward in terms of in terms of where I would take the internet to. One of the things that advocates for life, for family, somewhat for faith as well, especially today, uh, receive is not only a condemnation from the outside, but sometimes even within, particularly in our church today where... There's a lot of consternation with, you know, lines being crossed in the wrong direction from the highest levels. You you have this confrontation and then condemnation for stuff that should be just normal, but it's nonetheless there. From those who you would expect would be on side with you. Uh, I know Candace has had to deal with that, and you probably have as well. 
how do you deal with that yourself? How does Candace sort of navigate these waters? Because it's, it's hard out there. In terms of criticism from the right or criticism from those who you would think would be standing up for the truth in many ways. And I think this is the same with sometimes with church leadership as well. You know, one does feel very lonely sometimes about it. You know, you have Dr. Fauci a year before, you know, in the early days of COVID saying wearing a mask is ridiculous. And then of course, a year later, he's saying, you know, wearing a mask is, you know, you need to wear three masks or whatever. Um, you know, this was something that she was very much almost, I would say, solo talking about. And it's the same, you know, that there's that's quite unusual in many ways, but there are many other issues where one does feel quite alone speaking the truth and and saying this is actually what God's word says in 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 more my context here, which is more the kind of church discussions, ecclesiology, all this kind of stuff. The the, the I'm much more involved with talking about theology than I am these days about politics. But uh, you know, when one's talking about theology, it's it's inf- so important to have that courage to stand up for the truth, even if one is going to get criticism from your own side, um, or at least people who are supposed to be on one's own side. Um, and I think that that's very very true in the church of this day, where you see a lot of different viewpoints, some of which are coming from church hierarchy, some of which are coming from church leadership, and you're thinking, what is this? Uh, you know, this is totally counter to what God's teaching has always instructed the church to be, to, to teach. Uh, and suddenly you've got completely different dogma or completely different doctrine coming out. We're experiencing that right now in America with Cardinal McElroy and the whole, and Father James Martin, all around the LGBT issues. Um, it's coming also from Rome because even though there's sort of a clampdown when the, the German bishops wanted to do immediately the homosexual blessings in the churches, there was some little bit of a pushback from Rome, but they're going ahead anyway. Nonetheless, this is coming out. Pope Francis, of course, has given multiple positions to Father James Martin, who's very well known. He's also met with a lot of these Catholic groups that promote the LGBT agenda within the church, uh, call for same-sex blessings and so on. Um, He also made Cardinal of Cardinal McElroy when his views on the issue were well known. In fact, even when he made Supich a Cardinal, his views on the reception of Holy Communion, for instance, for homosexual couples was well known. So what do you make of these things? Because, I mean, you're involved in theology and um, the theology of the church is very, very controversial today, particularly with Pope Francis, in in a way, the opposite we saw from uh, what we had with Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. What's your take? It's very sad and dangerous to see this this trajectory right now. You know, one of the great encouragements I have is that we have often had errant teachers of, in the church, um, and we have often had errant bishops and archbishops and even errant, uh, you know, popes throughout history. And the church, and the, of course, the Holy Father is not, uh, he is not without error. He is only infallible when he speaks ex cathedra, uh, and as a result, you know, he is. As human as the rest of us, he can he can uh, and stray from the correct path. Now, that's not me saying that he he necessarily has. I think that uh, the phrase that I used the other day, the phrase that I heard the other day, which I thought was interesting, was you know, blissful ambiguity is the way that the Holy Father is currently producing doctrine, uh, which is definitely correct. Saying that, for example, the death penalty is inadmissible, well, that's completely wrong, because obviously. God himself prescribes the death penalty in the Old Testament. So therefore, how on earth can, you know, how how on earth can God be wrong? He cannot. Uh, So as a result, there must be something going wrong on this uh, this earth. 
the same with with church doctrine and teaching. The great one of the great beauties of the Catholic Church, and actually one of the things that attracts me to it or attracted me to it in its early day in my early days of conversion, was that the teaching body of the church is built up over thousands of years. We are not dealing with something that actually, and this is, I would say, you're you're witnessing the complete collapse currently in the Anglican communion of this going on. Uh, you know, poorly formed doctrinal bases. Uh, full, you know, when you build your house on the sand, it gets knocked down by the flood. The Bible teaches us this. When you build your foundations in stone, you have something which is solid, and the flood will come, and the house will not wash away. Um, we we have a thousand we have thousands of years of church doctrine and teaching which has built and layered upon layered upon layered. We are not, you know, we are not just a a ladder where you can knock down the rung beneath it. You know, it is it is a it is a seamless staircase where you need every stair to get to the top. Um, and we have this great corpus, this great body of magisterial teaching which has been built up, and it cannot just be done away with in one papacy. It cannot just be done away with with a few uh, rogue cardinals talking about their position, their personal position on church teaching, which runs directly in counter to everything that the church has taught for thousands of years. Um, so the truth will always win. The church will not accept it. Uh, you know, the church, the body of the church will not accept it. Um, and there are, of course, great forces within the church who will seek to preserve the the doctrine that has always been taught and has always been preserved and is presented to the laity to this day. Um, and of course, that that key doctrinal position has not yet been overturned or overruled. The church does not accept, you know, the LGBT agenda in any way, shape, or form, whether it be, you know, same-sex communion blessings or whether it be the transgender movement or whatever, you know, monstrosity is presented to us. That was fascinating. I was just in Africa, and the the Holy Father, of course, was there. Just before he left for Africa, he talked about the need of the African bishops to have a conversion on these issues around LGBT. While he was leaving, he held that joint press conference in the plane with uh, Justin Welby of the Anglican Church and the Ian Greenshields of the Church of Scotland, reiterating sort of the need for, you know, this change on LGBT issues. It was funny because in response, perhaps not in direct response, but the outcome of that was uh, this Lent, the uh, Catholic archbishops uh, in in Africa, particularly in Uganda and Kenya, came up with a Lenten movement to, to work against the LGBT agenda. Um, so I thought that was very interesting from the New World bishops indeed. There's fearless Catholicism being preached. And, you know, in the Anglican Church years ago, when they were already starting to go off in the same direction, you had the concept of flying bishops, where you know, the, the Episcopalians in the West felt that they had no real Episcopal leadership, no real um, biblically based or faithful leadership. And they would get sort of the leadership they needed from Africa, from where the largest number of Anglicans actually are. And uh, it's fascinating because I think it's happening somewhat in the Catholic Church too today. You're having the voice of Christ on the issues of our day, which weren't spoken of or maybe even spoken from the other perspective um, here in the West, but you're having that Catholic voice still, but it's coming from Africa. It's amazing. Again, coming back to the numbers and and the political machinations of the whole thing, you know, the reason that the German Conference of Bishops is so, you know, avowedly secular is because the German church is, you know, the Archdiocese of Cologne, for example, is, is, uh, is funded by state taxes. Well, I mean, in that in that scenario where you have, you know, you 
you just replicated the Church of England, which, you know, okay, the Church of England doesn't receive funding from the state, but it is an established church, which means that the, the king is the head of the Church of England. As soon as you start to remove God from the position of the head, you know, you're in trouble. You're, you're, you're in big trouble because you then reliant upon the state and the architecture of the state in whatever format that may take to back up the church. The church in Germany, I mean, Germany is a very liberal country uh, in terms of its morality and, and ethical and secular teachings. It's very, very repressive on free speech these days. It's got a lot worse in the last uh, 10 years. And so it's obvious, it's, it, it would seem obvious to me that a church which is so in bed with the state would start to adhere to statist principles such as, you know, wanting to bless same-sex unions. Because I imagine that they're probably under quite a lot of pressure from the people who pay the taxes, right? And so this is, this is where that conversation has gone, right? It's a highly bureaucratic church, the German church. And this is why it's, I would almost argue, you know, pretty, pretty far alone. I mean, I can't actually speak for the rest of the Catholic European church. You know, like I'm, I've seen churches in England with, with the pride flag outside, and I'm sure there are a few of them. Um, but generally speaking, you know, the, the German church has been completely outspoken in its advancement of this agenda. Um, and, and the reason being is because almost uniquely of all the Catholic churches in the world, and I'm sure somebody will fact check me here and say, well, actually, you know, the church in Eritrea is, is also provided with state funding. But, but almost uniquely, this is the only church which gathers funds from its, from its state tax, right? And so I think that that has a lot to do with the way that the German church has ended up governed. And finally, I would just say, you know, it was Fulton J. Sheen who talked about how in the latter times it would be the laity called to speak out, called to defend the faith, when the proper people to do that job would uh, probably not be there doing it. And one of those people, uh, even though she's not Catholic, might I say Catholic yet, but, um, you know, is your own wife. And doing so in a way that's very convincing, very forthright, very down to earth, in, in a way that many people, I think, wish their prelates and their priests would speak out. She has put uh, Archbishop Sheen on her podcast before, so he's definitely made an appearance a couple of times. But yeah, no, she's she's very outspoken about everything. <laughs> George, any final thoughts? Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm really honored to be here, John Henry, and I thank you for your mission and your calling, which is clearly uh, evident. And I thank you for all the work you're doing. Um, and uh, I think what you just said there at the very end is is so true. The laity are called to this mission and the rise in people like yourself in in video format to advance kind of lay apologetics is so important in modern culture because so many people now get content from this great medium which is the internet praise god thank you george thank you for sharing uh, about your conversion about your life and uh, god bless you and god bless all of you and we'll see you next time Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.